In Revelation chapter 3, the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 2 in the church of Ephesus. And it said that they lost their first love. They had forgotten their first love of Jesus Christ. In Sardis, we see it as the church that is keeping up appearances. Now I can give you a disclaimer right off the bat. Anytime we preach a sermon about anything, obviously we want it to be applicable. And so the, the, the natural jump would be that we're a church that's just trying to keep up appearances and there's nothing true, there's nothing healthy, there's nothing about us. And I want to dispel that myth right off the bat. We are a church that enjoys some great health, great unity, great love. I think we do live out, uh, by and large, the John chapter 17 admonition of loving the body, loving one another so that we authenticate the gospel. But yet in some way, some regard, we can learn. We can learn something. We can learn from these churches that we see here in the book of Revelation. And the church of Sardis was one that was keeping up appearances. There was a British TV show of a decade or so ago by the same name, Keeping Up Appearances, in which the main character was a kind of a snobbish, middle-class social climber. She was always trying to climb the social ladder, and she wanted to be in a different social strata than what she was. And so kind of the, the comedy of the sitcom would ensue because she was always trying to keep up appearances of someone that she wasn't. And even her name was a name called Hyacinth Bucket. But she insisted with people that it was bouquet, hyacinth bouquet. And so the whole premise of the show is she was keeping up appearances. And so we see this with the church of Sardis, that the church of Sardis appeared to be fine on the outside. But yet they needed a great overworking of their heart. So we are a church, I say it wholeheartedly, that has great health. But yet we can still learn something from Sardis. And we can be too a church from whatever state we're in. That we are a church as we sang in this song. We are a church that rises from the ashes of who we are now. To be all that God wants us to be as a missional community. Taking the good news of the gospel to those who need it. Helping our believers grow in their maturity. And they too experiencing the joy of living out the mission for which they were called. So it says here in verse 1 of chapter 3, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The angel, remember, is, is a word that's used here uh, for, the, for the pastor or the elder. For the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, also the seven stars speaking of those pastors of those seven churches. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know the hour that I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Jesus Christ will return, be clothed in white, and I will never blot out his name. The one who, who, who follows in that clothing, who, who is truly righteous, bears the fruit of such. And I will confess his name before my Father in heaven, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. Listen up, he says, what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Here's the first thing that we're going to see here in verse 1 is a call to review. We have to call, we're called to review. Sardis itself was, a, was an ancient city, it was an ancient capital of Lydia, very important city. And in fact, it was thought to be an impregnable fortress. It's set high on a cliff, set high on a hill, and it was thought to be absolutely impregnable. And it was, because of that, it was a great source and a site of military strength. But it was the capital of ancient Lydia. It was also an important Persian city. It was also later than that a seat of a Roman proconsul. And it was in the midst, the city itself sat in the midst of an important shipping road. So it was an important city, an important church. And they thought they were impregnable. But as you could see from the number of different empires who held the city, it wasn't. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But he says, you have a name that you're alive, but, you're, but you are dead. It's, you have an appearance that you're alive, but you're really dead. They had a great reputation. They had a great reputation in the city. They had a great reputation amongst the other churches. Things were fun- functioning well. Things looked good on the outside. But much when you kind of draw from the empire in which they set, illustration from the Roman sarcophagi and, and the Roman mausoleums, the sar- uh, sarcophagus of one who is dead was this, uh, was this kind of crypt in which the body was held. And on the outside of these various sarcophagi, you would see these beautiful reliefs, these carved uh, images, if it was an important person. So it was a beautiful uh, place and for the body to be held, but yet on the inside it was still a dead body. Same with the Roman mausoleums. They were immense for some of the very important people. So much so that there's reports of some of these mausoleums that had bedrooms and actually had a preparation area for food because families would come and stay and celebrate the life of their uh, loved one who had passed on. But inside a sarcophagus, inside a mausoleum, no matter how it appears on the outside, it is still holding a dead body. So what does it mean here as he applies this to the church of Sardis? First of all, He's speaking, there's some in the, in the midst of this body of the church of Sardis that are unregenerate church members. They're unregenerate. What do we mean by un, unregenerate? Seems kind of like a big word, maybe a big churchy word. But one of the greatest truths about our life when we give our life to Jesus Christ is that we have been regenerated. The way that God speaks of us before we know Christ as our Savior because of the sin in our life is that we are dead. We are dead. We're not alive. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so when we come to the place where we agree with God that I've sinned, we believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son that was sent to the earth to save us from our sin, and He is the only way that we might have forgiveness and a hope of heaven. And then our proper response to that is committing our life to Jesus Christ, turning from our old way of life, that's repentance, and committing our life to Jesus Christ. When that happens, we are clean, we are made new, we are made whole, and we are made alive. We're regenerated. And so even though we can have the appearance of being alive, we're truly dead. It's almost like some sort of zombie situation wandering around. And he says the church at Sardis had this sort of dynamic that there were people in the midst that may have been attending the church, may have appeared as though they were alive, but they really had never come to the place where they'd given their life to Jesus Christ. So again, those of you who have joined us in the last couple of weeks in the previous hour for Metro in Focus, this is part of what this large study is. Are we a church that's dead? We looked at autopsy of a deceased church, a study that we did. I say, are we dead? No, we're not dead. In fact, we're very much alive, and in many ways we have health. But as I've said, and I'm saying it ad nauseum, we can never just kind of rest on our laurels and say we can't ever learn something from churches that were diseased and decaying and died. 
to know how can we prevent that sort of disease from metastasizing in our midst. So unregenerate church members is the first thing. One of the famous sayings of Billy Graham was the greatest mission field is the wor- in the world are the membership roles of American churches. You probably heard him say that before. He said one of the greatest mission, he said the greatest mission field in the world, it was, uh, is, as he stated, the greatest mission field in the world is the membership roles of the American churches. Now whether we agree with that or not, he's kind of in generalities, the point rings true is that even in our churches, there are those that may have been attending for a long time. They may have been someone that was thought, maybe when they were young, they had made a decision, but really if they would look back and search, praying, the Holy Spirit reveals clearly to them. Maybe it was just simply they wanted to to be like a friend or they wanted to go with a friend. Maybe there was never really a turning of the old way of life, a repentance and a turning to Jesus Christ. So we see that as well. You see the unregenerate membership he's speaking of, but also as he speaks to the entire church and which relates even to those who are believers, going through the motions, just kind of going through the motions of, of doing church, kind of church consumerism. You know, church consumerism at any church in America is, is rampant. You see authors of, of, of from that pastor churches of all types of churches, all stripes, all ages that say, One thing that is a major disease in the church culture in America is church consumerism. I'm coming to church for what I can get from it. Now, we say you you come to church and you can't get something from it? Absolutely not. We know that that is part of it. We know that we come for encouragement. We come for a spiritual tune-up, if you will. We come together with our brothers and sisters and encourage one another to go back out into the world and take the good news of the gospel. But when we begin to think that the church is basically to just do that, just to give me a spiritual tune-up, it's just basically to answer some questions I've got of, of life and say, oh, that's interesting, and then that's all we take it for. We know that the church is not functioning like a local church should function. We can't go through the motions, but we must know that we are God's point. We are God's plan A. Believers in the midst of local churches is God's plan and there is no plan B for taking the kingdom of God through the gospel to the entire world. We are to encourage and challenge one another as we are growing in maturity and we are going out and we are sharing the good news that yes, even though you are dead in your sin and yes, even though your heart hurts and is pained and maybe you don't even recognize it till those times when you just settle down and slow down and you finally realize it, that pain in your heart is a longing for God it can only be cured by Jesus Christ. We take that message. That's why we're here. We're God's plan A and there is no plan B. The second thing we see, not only is that call to review in verse 1, a call to review, but secondly we see in verses 2 and 3, a call to revive. A call to revive. He says this, wake up, wake up, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Repent then. Remember that's turn. Turn. You're heading this way, you turn. Repent. Repent. And remember what you've received and keep it. Repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour at which I come against you. This language sounds similar to Jesus' return. It's not saying if it's Jesus' return specifically that he's speaking of because that would put his return contingent upon how one specific church acts. So it's not talking about that, about the second coming of Christ. But what he is saying is in the same way, he will come with that suddenness. He'll come in that suddenness. We'll talk about that in a minute, how we are ready for to come so he says wake up wake up 
Remember I mentioned the city of Sardis. It's thought to be this impregnable fort. It's set up high on a hill. No one thought they could conquer it. A great symbol of military strength and might. But yet it was conquered in its history at least four times. Uh, two of those times they knew the attack was coming. And two of those times because they weren't being watchful. 549 B.C., led by army by Cyrus, there was actually a brave soldier that decided to scale the wall, the sheer precipice, up to the city of Sardis, up to their walls, scale the walls. At his leadership, a few more soldiers did. They climbed the wall, came over the wall. They were able to conquer the city, free it up for the rest of the army to come through. All because they weren't being watchful. I think God in his sovereignty and the leadership of the Holy Spirit as he's leading John to write knew exactly what the people of Sardis, what would really ring their bell. They remembered their history, that they weren't watchful. And this fortress that they thought was impregnable really could be defeated. So he says, be watchful, be watchful. It reminds me of a couple of other verses in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Watch Be watchful. Stand fast in the faith. He says, stand fast. Know your faith. Spend time with the Lord. Stand fast and in the midst of of those trying times. Be brave. Be strong. We see dating even back into the time of Joshua. When Joshua was leading the people into the promised land, he said, be courageous. Be courageous. Your God is with you. Be courageous. Be courageous. Be strong. As we live our Christian lives as individuals and as we as individuals come together as a glorious puzzle making up this local church, we're to be strong and courageous. And what God has called us to and the life he has called us to live, be courageous, be strong, and let it all be done with love. Ephesians 6.18, at the end of that wonderful passage about the, uh, about the armor of God, arming ourselves with the armor of God, he says this, Praying always with all prayer, he says, pray, pray, pray. That other offensive weapon that you have, the only piece that is mentioned in the armor is the word of God. That's an offensive weapon of the piece of armor. But we also have this weapon kind of collectively of praying always with prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Let us walk in prayer, watch and be strong and be brave for what God has called us to. So as we have a call to revive, be watchful. Also, he says, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. So obviously, generally, he's saying that you appear to be alive, but you're really dead. He says to this church in Sardis, you're like a a great Roman sarcophagus that's beautiful on the outside, but it holds a dead body. But here he says there is still a remnant of something that is alive. There is still something there, but there's spiritual atrophy that has taken place. Return to the foundations, those foundational things, the foundations that have fizzled. Return to those. Return to the foundations of prayer and taking the gospel and growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Return to those things. Return to them as a church. And then it will turn that lifeless into something that is lively. That lifeless body, turn it into something lively. Again, I feel almost like I need to reiterate it ad nauseum. We are not dead as a church. I see great health, but yet we cannot rest on our laurels, assuming that everything is fine, assuming we have to protect ourselves, inoculate ourselves from disease and decay by the word of God and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13 say this, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, 
looking at that runner that's running. And, and as, as that runner begins to run and run and run and begins to, their body breaks down, their, their form begins to break down. And then it's a struggle that is hard to run becomes an even greater struggle. It says, strengthen the hands in, in, the, in which hang down in the feeble knees. Make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. In our individual lives, as a church, let us strengthen ourselves. Let us steal our resolve. If we are living for Jesus Christ, if we are carrying out the Great Commission, we are right in the crosshairs of the enemy. And we must pray that the Lord would strengthen us, give us strength in accomplishing our mission. And he says, remember, remember, verse 3 of Revelation chapter 3, not only under a call to revival, we watchful, do we strengthen, but we also remember it's that sort of disciplined, proactive thought. We, we think intently about Christ. Philippians 4.8, I think, illustrates this really well, this kind of spiritual audit that we do in our lives. Finally, brethren, he says, Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, whatever things are true, and guess what? Even in the midst of our postmodern world that says truth is relative, there are things that are true, and we can stand on them. Whatever things are true, the word of God, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, those things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You see, biblical meditation is an Eastern meditation. We think of Eastern meditation as almost like an emptying of our mind, kind of finding our center and kind of doing chants and humming and this sort of thing. So we kind of clear ourselves and, and this sort of deal. Biblical meditation is taking the truth of God's word and it's not emptying yourselves, but it is filling your mind with the word of God. What things do we fill our lives with that kind of drive out and push out and leave no room for the word of God? Do we fill our lives with frivolous things? Do we fill our lives with maybe even things that intrinsically are, no, are, are not bad, but we're filling our lives with them? Are we filling our lives with things that don't honor the Lord? Is there TV shows or movies or music, conversations, whatever it may be that we're filling our lives with and it drives out the word of God? Even practically, it's driving the time away from our plate to spend time with him and to think and meditate on those things that are pure and noble and of good report. So not only do we remember... But we take what we have received and heard. We recall that first love. We recall that first love that we saw last week in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 of the church of Ephesus. Why do we exist as a church? We exist for more than just kind of gathering together as a Christian social club. Fellowship is a wonderful part of what we do. But we're here for more than that. We are here because we are on point taking the gospel to the world. He says not only remember, receive it. And hold fast to it. Receive what you've heard. But he says to do that very thing. Hold fast. Cling to what is indispensable. Remember last week we talked about oftentimes we will, we will forego the indispensable for those things that are important. It's kind of like the, the wisdom in the, in the church and the biblical uh, version of, the, of that kind of good to great principle. Or that good in place of great. That oftentimes instead of the great will settle for the good and therefore the good becomes the enemy of the great. We talked about that last week. There are things that we do as a church which on the surface seem important, but they, are, they can get in the way of those things that are absolutely indispensable. Time may be our greatest commodity, and we have no luxury as a church and as individuals, especially of being frivolous with our time. Let me ask you this question. What do you think as a church and in our individual lives 
if Satan could have his way, what things do you think that we would do as a church, you would do as an individual that Satan would either support or Satan would try to supplant? That he would support or try to supplant? He'd say, Pastor, he's not going to support anything that we would do as a church. He's not going to support anything. I don't know if we should be so sure about that. You know, Satan is the craftiest enemy that anyone will ever face. And his number one goal is to thwart the kingdom of God and to thwart the mission of God, which is seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior and growing in that relationship with the Lord. And he is out to thwart that. And if he sees that a church is distracted with something that is not accomplishing or may at one time have accomplished that goal of the Great Commission but is not accomplishing it now, and there's something that church is doing which is preventing them from doing something that returns them to their great mission, I think he might be all for that. I think he might be all for that. What would he try to support? What would he try to supplant? And so we hold fast and we repent We repent. Again, it's that turning back to what is indispensable. Turning back to it. And he says, if we don't do this, he says, if that's not the case, speaking to the church of Sardis, I will come upon you with suddenness. I will come upon you as a thief. So again, this is speaking of the context. We can't say this is the return of Christ, the second return of Christ, because that would mean Christ's return is set upon and it's kind of hanging upon what Sardis does. We know that's not the case. What can we draw from this? In the same way that... Christ will come again and return again with suddenness. So he will come if there's not a repentance. So again, we are a healthy church. But yet in some area, in our individual lives, we must return again. We must repent and return. Return back to Jesus. And finally, in verses 4 and 5, a call to a remnant. Yet there's still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, those garments of of church life. It's kind of an illustration here for their appearances. They have not soiled their appearances of keeping up appearances. And they will walk with me in white. He says, you will know the fruit by the tree. It's kind of an an explanation. It's kind of a a, a a reference and kind of a strengthening illustration of that point of you will know a fruit by their tree. They have not soiled their garments. They'll walk with me in white for they are worthy for the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments Jesus will return and he will never blot out his name out of the book the one who follows Jesus will not their their name will never be blotted out of the book of life that just as James said just as we see in Luke as well that you know the fruit by their tree you know the tree by the fruit I will confess his name before the Father, the one who, 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 the one who uh, does not just go through the motions but proves out their true, uh, their true nature, the true nature of the tree of their life by the good fruit, the good works. They don't win their salvation, but they prove exactly who they are. They're a child of God. This one I'll confess before my Father and before his angels. And finally he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. You see, those of the remnant, there's a remnant in any church, and I think it's a rather large remnant here. I think it's a rather large remnant of a, of a group that is healthy and ready to move and ready, to, uh, ready again to, to always be kind of recapturing that vision, recapturing that mission of God, returning to it again. However large the remnant is, a remnant speaks of a small group, but I think it's a rather large group here of those who want to see the Lord move, want to see a return to the Great Commission. Those of the remnant must awaken and audit themselves and be willing at times to radically change so that we may walk confidently into the future as we take and we proliferate the kingdom of God. May he revive us. 
May we look again and audit ourselves. May we be called to a review of our individual lives and as our church. May we be ready to be that shining light and that beacon for the good news of the gospel in Wichita, in Kansas, and beyond. Lord God, we pray. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts. We pray now that you would revive us again. We pray now, as we have called our church this morning to over the course of this month, pray specifically and pointedly for, for worship or for, for revival in our midst, Lord. God, that you would revive us again. God, we thank you for the, for the fact that we do have a healthy, unified body here, but we know that we can be revived. We know in some way, shape, or form, we must individually and as a church review ourselves to say, God, am I living out the Great Commission? Am I living missionally? Am I living as your ambassador in the world? God, help us to review and do that, that spiritual audit in our lives. And God, may we have the courage and may we be willing, wherever you call us in our lives, that we must change, we must give something over to you. This is an area of our life in which we have held on to tightly, but we need it. Uh, you, you say, this is something you need to give to me. Let me have control of this. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me that I might not give you an area of abundance, an abundant life of joy and peace. Let us trust you in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Coming out of this time of